you don't hate history. You hate the way it was taught to you in high school. Stephen Ambrose. Welcome to the Revisionist History Podcast, where we set the historical record straight, no matter who it might offend. I'm Paul, and today we'll be looking at one of the greatest perpetrators of revisionist history there is, high school history. Now, this is actually true at all levels of our educational system, but it's most glaring in high school. We've talked about this issue before, but with the debate raging over how best to reopen our schools during the pandemic, as well as renewed interest in the way that history has been presented up to this point, it's a good time to revisit the subject. A whole generation of kids is about to get their official instruction in world and American history, either online or in the classroom, and that's a big deal. Now I say official because obviously children learn history from myriad sources, from parents and friends, to museums, to TV and movies, to more than ever, YouTube. YouTube can be both a blessing and a curse for historical information. Check out my episode on the best YouTube history channels for the ones you should be following and try to avoid those ones that clearly are propaganda. But YouTube notwithstanding, for the most part, the historical information that children get comes from school classes, if only because history is a required subject. And it is in this school system that revisionism happens most for some key reasons. When we come back, we'll look at a few of those reasons. Many people naturally assume that the teaching of history is standardized throughout the United States. But this is, in reality, not the case at all. While all students are required, for example, to take American history classes, both to graduate and be accepted into a college or university, what is taught in those classes can vary significantly, both in different parts of the country and even within individual schools. This is because each of the 50 states sets certain academic standards, including which textbooks are used and what information they contain. Each local school district makes further decisions for their city or district, and each teacher brings their own personal beliefs and biases to the classroom. The choice of which textbooks students will use to learn history is the first, and in many ways, most important step in the process. It's from these books that students get their first impression of the history they're studying, even before the teachers take on the subject. It's to these textbooks the students will, in theory at least, turn when they're studying on their own. Thus, who chooses this gateway text is critical. So who actually does choose the textbooks? That will vary somewhat from state to state, but in most cases, the books are chosen by a committee under the authority of the State Board of Education. These committees are made up of both teachers and political appointees, and it is with the second group that both the variation between states and the trouble it brings usually begins. 
Political appointees are, obviously, political beings, and they reflect the beliefs of the governor or legislature that appointed them. Thus, the appointees and the text they select for students will tend to be more liberal in liberal states and more conservative in conservative ones. This is an often overlooked aspect of the two parties, both Republican and Democrat, quest to control the executive and legislative branches of as many state governments as possible. Most of us recognize the impact of a party setting the legislative agenda, appointing like-minded judges, which is a deeply flawed process in itself, etc. But few of us stop to think about how this control impacts the teaching and thus the worldview of future generations. To be fair, most of the members of these textbook committees, both teachers and political appointees, go into the job with the best of intentions, not with the goal of spreading propaganda-level history. But they do come with their own baggage regarding their view of history, which ultimately can cause an American history textbook in Boston, Massachusetts to be very different in sometimes subtle and sometimes glaring ways from one in Jackson, Mississippi. In Texas, where I live, there are often fights within the selection committee itself that reflect the views of the members. There was a recent blow-up over the choice of a revised Texas history textbook that removed a phrase calling the defenders of the Alamo heroes. Members of the board argued that the phrase didn't belong. Texans went absolutely nuts over the proposed change, and heroes stayed in the book. Now, if you listen to my episode on the real history of the Alamo, you'll see that the controversy could have easily been avoided if we would simply acknowledge that the combatants on both sides of the battle fought heroically. But that requires a level of historical honesty that is frankly too much effort for some. Calling the defenders heroes is perfectly acceptable. Presenting the Mexican troops as villains, in contrast, is not. A more widespread battle continues to rage over the portrayal of Christopher Columbus in our school textbooks. Until about three decades ago, Columbus was always presented in glowing terms as a near saintly visionary who, contrary to the belief at the time, knew the world was round and set off boldly to discover America, bringing civilization and Christianity to the backward native peoples in a most benevolent way. As we now know, of course, the actual facts were quite different. The problem is, many have now swung to a completely villainous view of Columbus, portraying him as a rapacious destroyer of advanced native civilizations who sought only riches and acted out of greed and racial prejudice. As in most cases, the historical facts include parts of both versions, and both should be acknowledged and taught. Otherwise, we end up with a skewed view not just of Columbus, but of who we are and how we got here. Now, the other intangible that impacts how kids actually learn history is the teachers themselves. This happens for myriad reasons, because while the vast majority of our teachers are dedicated to both their subject matter and their students, there are some glaring exceptions, two of which come immediately to mind. First, there are the unqualified history teachers. There are arguably more of these in the area of history than in any other high school subject. That is because, 
since sports coaches are required to also teach classes, at least in the South. Most often, it's history that gets the teachers who know a lot about blitzing a quarterback, but little about the Nazi blitzkrieg of Europe. Their teaching of history can be revisionist because their knowledge of it is limited, but their often evident simple disinterest in their subject is even more damaging, leaving the students to basically learn, or more often than not, not learn, history on their own. The other glaring exception to the dedicated teacher of history is the activist teacher, the teacher with a set agenda who presents only the parts of history that suit their political or social worldview. Often what they teach is the very epitome of revisionist history, with little resemblance to the actual events. In universities, this most often leans leftward, toward a liberal interpretation. But in high schools, it can easily lean left or right, and neither are a good thing. It is just as much a disservice to both students and history itself for a super conservative teacher to present a jingoistic America first view of our history as it is for a far left teacher to present the United States as the great Satan who has done nothing but evil since its founding. I wish there was a simple solution for these issues, or even a simply good one, but there isn't. Until we change the way books are chosen and the way instructors are both chosen and held accountable for what they teach, the trend of revisionist history will continue. Maybe the first step, as in all things, is recognizing that the problem exists. We would never allow such variation nationwide in the teaching of math and science, so why in history? And maybe the first step in recognizing the problem is getting to a place where we recognize and embrace the fact that real history, honest history, factual history matters. Until then, we'll just keep doing what we've always done, which is the very definition of insanity. Have a great week. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you're finding this podcast both informative and entertaining. If you'd like to help us keep episodes like this coming, please consider clicking on the support this podcast link in the show notes. It'll help us create more content and go a long way toward making this podcast completely ad free. Thanks again.